0: Uh, and we can catch them up. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for gathering us together on this Wednesday, this, the middle of this week, to, to study your word and to uh, think about, um, in particular tonight, your supper and the table that you invite us to, uh, to come together and to enjoy a feast with you. Um, in fact, this coming week and then again on Wednesday, we ask that you would use this time to encourage us uh, to, to lift up our hearts, um, and to, to help us understand and appreciate the gifts that you give us through the Lord's Supper. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, before we jump in in earnest, um, let's go to Psalm 23. Because I think that it's, so what's about to happen is, you'll notice the first thing on this, this note sheet is um, philosophical terms. And there's a reason we have to do that, because that's, that's where the debates are and everything. But um, I want to start in Psalm 23, because the Lord's Supper, while, while we go into some of these, these big philosophical and theological concepts, the Lord's Supper is ultimately, or primarily, a way for us to enjoy a meal with God. And Psalm 23 tells us a little bit about that. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if, if you don't know about the, the order of the Psalms here, um, Psalm 22 is either Jesus sang it on the cross or he references Psalm 22 on the cross. And if you read Psalm 22, it's a big prophecy. Of, of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. And so there are things, it's very uncanny, and the, the gospel writers are really picking things out here to show what Jesus is actually doing. Um, this is where th- you see things like, uh, they've pierced my hands and my feet. This is verse 16 of Psalm 22. I can count on my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. And so Psalm 22 is a, a direct prophecy of what Jesus is going to do on the cross, and so what we have in Psalm 22, 23, and 24 is a prophetic picture of what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus, in, in Psalm 22, he, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's this lament psalm, and it goes down into death. And then on the other side of Psalm 23, you have this comfort where God leads Jesus. in, in the Christological picture of this, God is leading Jesus and us by extension through the valley of the shadow of death. And on the other side of the valley of the shadow of death is a table. And so God prepares a table for Jesus in the presence of his enemies. And this is the table that we're invited to when we come to take the Lord's Supper. This is the table that God prepares for Christ, and it's the marriage supper that we're all invited to, ultimately. And so there's, a, there's an eschatological picture, an end times picture, a last... Uh, in the last day picture of the marriage supper, where we all get to come and join um, in a more unique way before Jesus and eat at his table. But in the Lord's Supper, God invites us to his table. And so before we go into all this, this you know, kind of big concepts and we'll get some Latin and things like that. Remember, the, the, what we're developing is an understanding of what it means to eat supper with Jesus. And um, we, we can get lost in some of these categories and terms and things like that. But my hope for this is that you'll come away from this appreciating what Jesus invites you to um, as we come to the Lord's table and particularly as we come on Sunday to the Lord's table. So um, reflect on that as we jump into these philosophical terms. So um, the Lord's Supper is one of the key things that um, the Reformers have had attempted to reform of the Roman Catholic Church. Um, you'll remember we talked about worship and I was, I explained that worship would have been one of the first things that you recognized a difference in um, if you were a person in, in the era of the Reformation and you, you were living around reformers. And part and parcel of worship, part of worship is the Lord's Supper. And um, if you've, I think I printed off a copy of the Latin Mass a few weeks ago. But the Latin Mass contained a very elaborate liturgy for the Lord's Supper. And this is partly due to the uh, theology of the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about, not at length, but we'll do some comparisons. Um, But the the main things to note are that in the Roman Catholic Church it's believed that the substance of the bread and wine are converted to the substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about those some definitions there in a minute. Um, Roman Catholics believe that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice. Now today they would say it is a participation in the once for all sacrifice of Christ. That was not the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval era. Um, But at the time of the Reformation, the the thought was that each time the priest comes and offers uh, communion, what he's actually doing is re-sacrificing Jesus to God. And so you come with your sins from the last week and you come to church and what the priest does for you is he sacrifices Jesus on the altar for you. Now, that has been um, kind of rounded off a little bit in modern Catholic theology and so when I talk about what's going on in the Reformation, don't assume that what I'm talking about that, that carries over to modern Roman Catholicism, although modern Roman Catholics are committed um, kind of at a base level, on a principle level of saying that their theology has never changed and I'm telling you that it did and you know we can dispute about that. But <clears throat> If you have questions about that, I can answer those later. But my, my basic attention is that Roman Catholic theology has changed, it's always changing, it changes a lot. Um, and so there is a difference between medieval Roman Catholicism and modern Roman Catholicism. But there's always been this idea of sacrifice, which we're not, as Reformed people, we're not opposed to sacrifice in a certain sense of the word. Um, but, but we're certainly not saying that we're re-sacrificing Jesus. Um, we're, not, we're not offering up um, something before God. Jesus does that for us on our behalf. Um, but part of the liturgy of, of the Mass um, it, it contains all that theology. And um, so it, it's a very elaborate, and it's still this way, even though it's been kind of um, cut down a little bit in, in the new order, the Novus Ordo, in the modern Roman Catholic Church. But the, the central focus of a worship service is the Lord's Supper. And, um, you know, if you go to a Catholic church, they may have a 10 minute homily, but there's, the word is not is emphasized as much, and the altar is. Um, and notice it's called an altar, we call it a table here. Um, but the reformers cut back on all that. Um, the The most conservative reformers, conservative in the sense of they wanted to change the least with the Roman Catholic Church, would have been uh, Martin Luther and Thomas Cranmer in England. Um, this was the place where they edited the old Latin Mass the most. So if you look at the Anglican Book of Common Prayer or the Lutheran service books, um, a lot of the service looks very similar to the Latin Mass until you get to the Lord's Supper. And this is the area where they've extracted a lot of the extra fanfare and, and fanciness out. Um, and they focus on the simple act of eating before God. And it gets even more simple as you go into the Reformed. Um, you know, If you went to Geneva, the way we do communion um, for the Genevan church would be a little too fancy. So they use, in Geneva, back in, in the Reformation, they would have used... Um, Wooden bowls and uh, you know wooden cups, so they would say silver is too nice for the Lord's supper, because it's a simple meal, right? It's not a it's not a meal that's with lots of you know. There's no elevating of the elements. There's no. Um, it, it's a common meal that we experience on a regular basis. It's not some special event. It should be a regular part of the Christian life, and that goes all the way down to you. Even have some uh, radical reformers who reject the Lord's supper altogether. Um, And so I would say the Reformed tradition is kind of in the middle of all of this, um, and that's part of the tension with the Reformed tradition. So um, that's kind of of the context we're looking at. Um, And there's also a philosophical context that we're coming out of. The Western Roman Catholic Church um, relied heavily on the work of Thomas Aquinas and, by extension, Aristotle Um, because Thomas was drawing on Aristotle a lot. So a lot of the categories that that this discussion happens in are coming from ultimately Aristotle by way of Thomas Aquinas. Um, And there's debates about the appropriateness of using these categories, but it's important because it helps us distinguish between us, them, and and how it all, um, all these different views. So with that said, let's look at some terms here. Um, I just have two philosophical terms. These are the key terms. And I've defined them, I've tried to, to reduce this definition down a little bit so that it's not so, um, because people get confused by this. So, the first thing you need to know is accidents. Accidents. So, this is not like I had a car accident, this is what is accidental or something. So kind of off to the side is another way to say it. And the accidents of a thing are the parts of a thing which are perceived by the senses. So, the accidents are what it looks, smells, tastes, sounds, and feels like. So, um, this pulpit has accidents. It feels a certain way, it sounds a certain way when I knock on it. Um, it smells like, I don't know what it smells like, I'm not going to smell it in front of you. But um, there, there are things that I perceive with my senses about this pulpit. But those things, that, the, the way that it feels is not the pulpit itself. And so that brings us to substance. Substance is that which is perceived by the intellect through the senses. So the example I have here is that you have in your mind what the concept of a dog is, right? Now, no two dogs look exactly alike, but you can tell what a dog is based on how it smells. Everybody knows what a dog smells like, right? Um, How it looks, the the things that it does, the way that it eats. um, All of these sense experiences tell our minds that's a dog. Does that make sense? So, um, this is really important because when you get to the Roman Catholic view, they would deny the, the connection between accidents and substance. Um, and so we would say, the, the way you know things, the way you know anything, um, with the exception of the innate knowledge that God gives you, the, the divine, the sense of the divine, you can see that in Romans 1. Um, besides some, some basic, innate, common notions, that God gives us, everything we know is by way of our senses. So in school, what do you do? You listen, you write, you read. You're perceiving things by way of your senses, by your ears, your eyes. Um, And so it's very, very, very important that we are able to trust our senses. Um, that's, That's the foundation of everything we know. And that's, if we can't trust our senses, then we can't trust God. And that, That's what Rene Descartes says later, um, later on in the Reformation. Um, because that's the way we know things. Now, of course, people have you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, people um, struggle with mental illness, and um, that, that can be distorted, our senses can be distorted. People are blind and deaf, and they don't have access to those senses. Um, but when things are working normally, Your senses are trustworthy. Um, That's why when you sit down, you you have confidence that you're not gonna fall over because you know that I'm sitting on a chair versus, or in this case, a pew, um, and I'm trusting my senses, I'm trusting my sight that that thing is actually there. And if you can't trust your senses, you can't trust anything because our senses are how we learn. Is everybody cool with that? (laughs) Am I going too far on on that? now, of course, God doesn't need to use our senses. And like I said, in Romans 1, um, you see that there's, there's something innate to us. In Romans 2, is more the, the law that's written on our hearts is, is in Romans 2. Um, there are things that we know inherently by, by virtue of our humanity that we don't have to perceive by our senses. Um, so things like murder is wrong. That's something that is written on our hearts by God. And we can distort that, and we can fight against that and suppress that, that that's written on our hearts. But by and large, for the most part, everything we know is by our senses. And so when, when you come to Roman Catholic theology of the Lord's Supper, this is my central objection to it. A Roman Catholic says you can't trust your senses because when you taste bread and wine, it's not bread and wine. When you see bread and wine, it's not bread and wine. When you smell it, when you touch it, when, when your senses are screaming at you that it's bread and wine, you can't trust your senses. And we'll get to a couple quotes about that later. And so the Reformed say, in, in response to that, no, um, we can trust our senses, and we'll get more on that later. Now, some theological terms. Any questions about the philosophy? So that's all I'm going to give you tonight. I did do, a few months ago now, I did a whole, basically, lesson on some philosophy terms and, and everything and how because we were talking about the doctrine of God. So if you want to go back and listen to that, I can point you to that. But that's, that's all we need for tonight, just that little bit. So now some theological terms. First, um, fancy Latin term, the extra-Calvinisticum. You don't have to remember that. Don't worry about that. There's no test anyway, but um, all this says, the extra-Calvinisticum, is a fancy Latin term that, re- that describes the reformed view of Christ, namely that Jesus is omnipresent with regards to his divinity only, as opposed to being omnipresent with regards to his humanity. So this is, this is the core. This is one of the things that started uh, Ulrich Zwingli, for example, thinking through the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. So where is Jesus right now? Right. He's at the right hand of the Father. And that's what what we say every Sunday, or not every Sunday, but most occasionally on Sunday. I don't know how often we say that. But um, when we say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I'm about to, later on, I'll take you through a whole list of quotes from the Bible that show that. And so Jesus is bodily seated in his physical body next to the right hand of the Father. Um, Now, Jesus is also God and omnipresence being everywhere, is um, part of the divine nature. So Jesus has that. Jesus is omnipresent, but only insofar as he is God. So um, human natures, we're all humans, none of us can be omnipresent. We can't be everywhere all at once. Um, And the Reformed would say, and I think this is right, that that's part of what it means to be human that we can't be omnipresent. And I won't get into the doctrine of God, but even divine simplicity says part of what it means to be God is to be omnipresent. And so because we want to be very clear about our distinction between Jesus' human nature and Jesus' divine nature, we would say he's omnipresent with regards to his divine nature, but He is only present at the right hand of the Father with regard to his physical nature. And so what that means is Jesus cannot be Present physically in the sacraments, or Jesus can't be present bodily in the sacraments because He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so this is, you know, the the Lutherans who don't believe that. By the way, um, I won't go into that unless you want to dive into that and ask questions about it. But uh, the Lutherans invented this term, the extra Calvinisticum, as kind of a, a jab at reform people, and we just picked it up and said, yeah, that's what we believe. So. <laughs> um, does anybody, is anybody opposed to that, that Jesus is physically, bodily present in heaven on the right hand of the Father and then omnipresent in his divinity? Is that cool with everybody? Okay. So next we'll look at kind of the three, what I'm going to say the three umbrella views of the Lord's Supper are. So the first one is consecrationism, the view that Christ is in some way locally present, which means he's on the table basically, in the elements of bread and wine. Whether by conversion, which is the Roman Catholic view, sacramental union is the Lutheran view, or some other means. So, this is held by um, Romanists, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, and some modern Anglicans or Episcopalians. By the way, when I say Romanists, that's not a, a dig at Roman Catholicism. Um, I'm just clarifying that that you know we say we're Catholic too. We're part of the Catholic Church, right? In terms of universal. So, I don't want to refer to Roman Catholicism as Catholicism as such. So. When I say Romanist, don't, don't take that as a, an insult. Some people do. but um, So this is the idea and that once the pastor or priest or whoever has said the words of institution, that something special has happened to the elements such that the elements themselves have become the body and blood of Christ. Um, so in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the, the priest says, Hocus meum corpus, which is, if you ever heard the phrase hocus pocus, that's where that comes from, is because people didn't understand Latin. And so <laughs> he says, Hocus pocus, and all of a sudden the bread is the body of Christ. Um, Lutherans have a similar view, but they, they don't have the transubstantiation view. So that's, that's one end of the spectrum, is consecrationism. Moving over, you have receptionism. Which this is the Reformed view, and we'll talk about some more details in a minute. So this is the view that Christ is present in the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, Communion, to the faithful only, and not locally in the elements. So this is held by the Reformed, basically, which would include Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, Continental Reforms, or Dutch Reformed, and most Anglicans or Episcopalians. So, which by the way, that's that's codified in their statement of their statements of faith, their confessions of faith in the um, Church of England and Anglican churches is this view of the Lord's Supper. Although some people reject that, they're a little bit more loosey-goosey with their confessions than we are. So, um, but that is the Anglican view is actually the Reformed view. Um, there's just that's just not universal among them. So, um, the way that you tell the difference between these two is mm-hmm. what you do with with the elements after the Lord's Supper is over. So, if you go to a Roman Catholic church, you've probably seen um, their tabernacle. They have a little, a little house, and when they're done with communion, they take the extra and they lock it up in a little house. Um, they do a similar thing in the Lutheran church. Um, and so, what that's telling you is that there's something special about that, and we can't—it's not normal bread and wine. So, in Reformed churches, what we do generally when we're done with communion and we have extras, we throw it away. And um, that's consistent with our theology because we don't believe that Jesus is in those elements. But you can see how if, if, you, if you thought that Jesus was present in the elements that you would put them uh, and do something special with them. And that's, But that's where you get theologies of adoration, for example. So Roman Catholics um, have adoration where they put, they'll they put a piece of bread in a, like a glass orb and put it in the middle of a cross and they set it up and you go and you pray before this because they say that is the presence of Jesus um, and all the reformed uh, all the, all the reformers including Lutheran's rejected that as a, as a legitimate thing to do because they would say that's idolatry but you can see how a, a consecrationist view leads to that sort of thing where um, if if that's Jesus then like I guess I should bow to it and if that's Jesus then I guess a crumb on the floor is also Jesus, and so we need to make sure that we don't drop crumbs. and We certainly don't want to give it to, to kids or lay people because they might spill it, they might drop it. And so you can see how this would all um, develop a very some, some very strange and superstitious theology. Fortunately, the, the Lutherans have really avoided that, and they have ways of, of dealing with that stuff, so they're not as um, protective of it as, as the Roman Catholics tend to be, but um, there's, I'll put those in the same category if that makes sense. Now that's not, there's different ways that, you know, not, not all reform people just throw, throw the bread and the wine in the trash, you know, some people say, well let's just because it's been set apart for, for a, a special use, um, some reform people like to put it like on the ground, on the dirt, so that instead of like in the trash can, so it goes to the dump, you know, not, not in a superstitious way, but just to recognize the, in the same way you might burn a flag instead of Throwing your American flag in the trash, you know, um, and it's the Church of England, the Anglicans. Uh, they got around this issue in a, a very wise way. They just eat it all. So when when it's over, they just if there's bread left, the priest just eats it, and then no problem. We, we don't have to worry about what we do with it after. Um, And because, you know, the Anglican Reformation was more conservative, uh, the the English Reformation was more conservative, and they were trying to not totally upend everything that the Roman Church did, and so that was a nice compromise position for them, is just to say, well, we're going to eat it all so that we don't have any left. And then finally, we have memorialism, which is the view that Christ is not present in the supper, but rather it serves as only a remembrance of Christ's death. Um, This is probably the most common, although you're seeing there's a shift among Southern Baptists in this toward a more receptionist view. But this is the most common view among um, Baptists and Evangelicals um, and sort of non-denominational churches will will have this kind of view. Um, You fall into the opposite trap with this. A lot of times communion is done in a very lackadaisical way um, with some of these groups. I remember one time... Um, which I'm not condoning this, but I took communion that was uh, administered by a high school senior and, you know, because they, they just left some some bread and grape juice in the room and said, you know, you guys have communion without us because they wanted it to be a special time for high schoolers. So I'm not condoning that, but that that's the kind of thing when, when you reduce the meaning of it to memorialism that that kind of thing happens. And so um, I've also been to concerts where they do communion and Um, Yeah, so I I would discourage that in general, um, which wouldn't surprise anybody. So those are kind of the three big camps. We're going to develop a a more, um, we're going to develop the the reform view of the Lord's Supper in just a second, um, in a little more detail. But any questions about those three categories right now? Okay. So let's talk about the reform view. The Reformed view of the Lord's Supper is based on a commitment to speaking about the supper, first, on scripture's terms, and second, in continuity with the Church Catholic, the universal Church, all Christians everywhere. So in general, we develop our doctrine of the Lord's Supper based on the following biblical and historical propositions. So I've just got three propositions for you, but I think that these three propositions are enough to establish the Reformed view, and they're very easy to defend biblically. So, the first one, we've talked about it a little bit already. We talk, I think we've talked about all of these a little bit already. Um, the first one is that Christ is bodily present at the right hand of the Father. So, I've got several scriptures for you. Mark 16, 19. So, then the Lord Jesus, after He had spoken to them, was taken up into Heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Now, there's disputes about the legitimacy of Mark 16, 19. I think it's legitimate, so I put it there. but. Um, if, that's, if you have issues with that, we can look at some other verses. First Peter 3. We talked about this last week with baptism. Uh, it says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then another one. This is uh, Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And I've given you a few more verses to look at too if you want to do that. So the, the consistent description of Jesus after his ascension in the New Testament is that he is seated at the right hand of God. And so there's a sense in which we can affirm that Jesus is omnipresent by virtue of his divinity. But the New Testament is very clear that the, thing that the thing that New Testament writers want to emphasize is that Jesus is, is not here anymore. He's up there. And so the place where Jesus is, is most, um, I don't want to say really, but the, the place where Jesus is most substantially present is in heaven next to the Father. That's where his humanity and his divinity meet, is up in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And this is the consistent view of the universal church, and it's the view found in the ecumenical creeds. So we say the Apostles' Creed, we say the Nicene Creed. It's also in the Athanasian Creed and in the Chalcedonian formula which is um, a, a formula specifically about the two natures of Christ and how they relate. Um, and so we're affirming with the Church that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Reformed, including me, would say that if, you're, um, if you have a, a, a view of the, of the Lord's Supper which places Jesus on, on the table or on the altar, then you've just denied the doctrine that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Because we're human, and because humans are constrained in space to their physical bodies, they can't be two places at once. Um, Now, Jesus' body is not like our body. Um, You see Jesus, for example, come into a locked room. He just appears, and and kind of, he seems to be doing some sort of teleporting thing when he's, uh, after his resurrection. Um, But he's only ever in one place at, at a time. He's never... He's not everywhere all at once. So um, Roman Catholics would say that there's a multiplication of Christ's body; that um, He's not actually omnipresent, but that He, you know, is His body is multiplied over the course of all the altars uh, on the, around the world. The Lutheran view is that Christ is actually just omnipresent in His humanity, um, which uh, I hate to use this word, but that that's borderline heresy because that's conf- conflating humanity, and divinity. So So Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. So that's our first proposition. The second proposition is that the substance of bread and wine remain in the Eucharist. So uh, this, is, this first passage is from 1 Corinthians 11. I've got the other, um, the three synoptic, synoptic gospel account of the Lord's Supper listed there um, as well as Acts 242, but this is what Paul says concerning the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So, um, just to give you a little bit of context, I'm going to flip there. You You can follow me to 1 Corinthians 11 if you want, but you don't have to. <clears throat> so what is this bread and this cup that he's talking about? <clears throat> so he's quoting Jesus in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night which, when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this bread and this cup that Paul is referring to is the bread and the cup that Jesus consecrated. That Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood. So what we want to affirm, because we want to use scripture's language, we want to affirm that there is still bread and wine on the table. Because that's, what the, that's the language that the Bible uses. So the Bible, Paul could have switched his language. Paul could have referred to it as, as long as you eat this flesh and drink this blood. But he doesn't. He says, eat this bread and drink this cup. So we want to be very careful to affirm that the substance of the bread and the wine remain in the Eucharist. They remain on the table. And that's what we eat. The substance of bread and wine. A couple quotes from people here. Calvin, all, he's talking about the, the Church Fathers, clearly and uniformly teach that the Sacred Supper consists in two parts, an earthly and a heavenly. The earthly, they without dispute, interpret to be bread and wine. Now, that's, that's a very broad statement, and I'm not going to make the same broad sweeping claims that Calvin does, but he's referring to the early Church Fathers, and in particular, he's referring to Augustine. And you can read, if you want to read this, I can give you citations, but uh, Augustine writes extensively, he has a sermon on John 6, which where Jesus talks about um, whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man will have eternal life, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, And Augustine, but Augustine talks a lot about how um, there's a difference between the earthly sign and the heavenly sign. So, um, remember last week we talked about how a sacrament is a visible sign of an invisible reality. That's from Augustine, who, I have his dates here somewhere, 354 to 430, very early. And so our definition of a sacrament is coming from Augustine, and that's the same definition that the Roman Catholic Church uses, a visible sign of an invisible reality. And what the Reforms say is that if, if you take the invisible reality and shove it into the, the visible sign, you don't have a sacrament anymore. Right? Because you're missing... the the union between the visible and the invisible. So it's very important for the sacrament to be a sacrament that we have the visible sign. And it seems that Paul is agreeing with us there that the visible sign is still present. And the early church fathers all agreed with that. Another thing to look at, and this is talking about uh, some of the sense, sense language we talked about earlier. This is Francis Turretin who was roughly contemporary with the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He says this, what many senses, properly disposed and furnished with all the requisites for actions, so senses that are um, that are working properly, uniformly, always, and everywhere testify that is necessarily true. So, if we're all standing in a crowd and um, we go to you know a Mississippi State basketball game and um, somebody hits a three, Tolu Smith, he doesn't shoot threes, but that's you know, <laughs> let's say Tolu Smith hits a three, right? How do we know that happened? Because we all saw it, right? Um, and so it's saying if, if you have 100,000 people or, you know, in the case of Mississippi State ball game, 500 people or whatever, all sitting around and, and watching something and though we all agree, we all saw that happen, then we can trust that that happened because the senses are faithful and true. We can trust our senses. And if we can't trust our senses, that's a big problem. So he says, whatever all, all people everywhere agree with their senses is true, that's true. Now the senses, this is Turretin, now the senses with one accord testify that after the consecration, the symbols are properly bread and wine, not body and blood. And so just like if we're all sitting at a Mississippi State basketball game, we all see a bucket go in. When we all sit in church, and we see the consecration of the elements happen, then we all see that it remains bread and wine on the table. Now, Roman Catholics will appear to m- appeal to mystery that we can't, you know, we, we, we have to see with eyes of faith, right, or something like that, um, and that it's a mystery, and that our senses can't be relied on in that particular instance. But that violates the principles of of knowledge that we rely on for building everything else that we that we know, right? If we can't trust our senses in this thing, then why do we trust our senses in anything, right? If God can, if God decides to make something happen that we can't see, we can't taste, we can't touch. But that's really true. Then why can't that be the case with everything? And you can see how this leads to a, a sort of nihilism about you know if we can't trust uh, what our senses are clearly telling us on the table, then when can we ever trust our senses? Now that doesn't mean that there's not something mysterious and something powerful happening in communion. But um, God can do mysterious and powerful things without lying to us, and and that's that's the central thing we need to understand is that. Uh, God is a truth teller, and if your senses, if everybody's senses, all agree that that's bread and wine, then that's what it is, because that's how we know things. Does that make sense? Is everybody following that? Okay, so first principle, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Second principle, uh, the substance of the bread and wine remain in the Eucharist. And third principle, the faithful, that is, believers, truly eat and drink Christ's body and blood while the faith, the unfaithful do not. So, um, two key scriptures on this. First, it's John 6. Um, I've got I've got these printed for you, but I'm going to look them up myself just to have context. John 6 is a very uh, thorny passage. And it seems like Jesus' whole goal in John 6 is to run everybody off, which he, pre- he does pretty well. That's kind of what happens at the end there. Because um, he's talking about like, Election and um, eating flesh and things like that. So let's let's see what he says. I'll start a little bit earlier. I think Um, I've got fifty three through fifty six, but I'm going to start in John six forty one. I'll read the whole thing. So the so, so the Jews grumbled about him because he had said, "I am the bread that came down from heaven." They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen seen the Father. and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then they all run away because they don't like what he said. So, Jesus, and this is really interesting because um, there's multiple opportunities for Jesus to kind of walk back what he's saying. Um, He starts out saying, I'm the bread of life, right? And I didn't didn't read that verse when he first says that. That's verse 35. And so they say, okay, well, you're not really the bread of life. That's kind of, you're not the bread of life that came down from heaven. And he says, no, no, I am the bread of life. Unless you eat me, you can't have eternal life. And then they go, well, you can't actually give us your real flesh to eat. And he says, no, 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 unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so Jesus, the Jews are giving Jesus these outs, like, but you're not really saying we have to eat your flesh and drink your blood. And that, he goes, no, you, you must eat my flesh drink my blood to have eternal life. Now, we can't take that to mean, well, he doesn't really, and this, this is, again, we talked about this with 1 Peter last week. Um, a lot of people take that passage, and they're like the Jews. They say, well, we can't eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood, right? Of course it doesn't mean that. But, um, if we take Jesus at his word, he doesn't mean that. and, and But we have to think about um, the mechanism by which that happens. And so um, a couple things to point out. Um, first of all, in verse... Sorry, I lost my place. In verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life if you jump to verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Same language from earlier. So there's there's this connection in John 6 between believing Jesus, believing in Christ, and eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They're tied together. And so the way that the Reformed have understood this is to say that Jesus is not talking about physical eating, or physical drinking. He's talking about real eating and real drinking, but it's of a spiritual kind. Now, when we start talking about spiritual things, our impulse is to say, oh, spiritual, that's not real, right? Spiritual is less than real for us. But for Jesus, spiritual is the real thing, right? It's just as real as the fact that we're sitting here talking right now. And so... When we say spiritual presence of Christ, that we spiritually feed on the body and blood of Christ, what we're not saying is that we don't really do it. And that's what people kind of hear sometimes. But what we are saying is we really do feed on the body and blood of Christ, but not in a physical way, in a spiritual way. Spiritual spiritual eating and drinking is real eating and drinking. So... um, we have to, we're reconciling these things together. And so, what, what we would say is if you believe in Christ, and this is, Augustine says the same thing if you believe in Christ, you have already eaten and drinking, and drinking, drank the body and blood of Christ. Because their belief is to commune with Jesus, to eat at his table. So, that's why we would say um, you don't have to take communion to be saved, right? You don't have to participate in this ritual to be saved. But in this ritual, in this sacrament that we partake in, we have the opportunity in a special way as a community of believers to come together and eat and drink in a a very pointed and intentional way the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that he's on the table. That doesn't mean that we need to put, put the elements up in a container somewhere to save. But it does mean that as you eat bread... And as you drink wine, your soul is feeding on the body and blood of Jesus in a spiritual way. And so one of the things that, if you look at these old liturgies, and I think this is good to do sometimes, but um, older liturgies will have the phrase, lift up your hearts. And so before communion, what you do is you say, the Lord be with you and also with you. And then the pastor will say, lift up your hearts, and the the congregation responds, we lift them up to the Lord. And and Calvin, when he was developing his doctrine of the Eucharist, of the Lord's Supper, um keys in on that, and he says, What's happening in the Lord's Supper is is not that Jesus is coming down to us, but that we are being lifted up to heaven with him. And so while we physically with our bodies eat and drink the body and blood of the, the bread and wine, we spiritually are lifted up to heaven and join in with the heavenly host. You see that in, in Hebrews twelve, for example, where worship is not just something that happens down here, it's something that happens up there too. And so the Christian life is full of visible signs that point to invisible realities. So when you sing in church, you sing with your mouth here, but you're also singing in heaven with the angels. When you pray in church, you're praying with those of us that are sitting in here, but you're also praying in heaven with the saints whose prayers go up before the Lord as incense. And when you eat the body and blood of, eat the bread and wine here, you're on earth, you are invisibly in a spiritual way eating the body and blood of Christ in heaven. And so that same concept, that the, the, our theology of worship is part of what drives this theology of the Lord's Supper, in addition to all this other biblical background. <clears throat> so in order to, to eat the body and blood of Christ we need to be believers and, and that's what makes us receptionists because there's nothing happening in the elements that's special or magical. What's happening is that by faith we receive these things. <clears throat> Now, let's look at the, the next scripture here, 1 Corinthians 10. Now, 1 Corinthians, if, you're, if you want to know about the Lord's Supper, read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. He talks all about that. That's, that's what that passage is all about, that whole argument. But this is what he says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 16 The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what the pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so we can't simultaneously be in communion with idols, be in communion with, for, you know, for them it was demons, for us maybe it's demons too, but it could be other things that we struggle with. We can't simultaneously be in communion with those things and also with Jesus. And so this is another mark against a, a consecrationist view where you know, if you're a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran church, they would say, even the unfaithful, even the unbeliever eats and drinks the body and blood of Christ. And we would say, no, there's no this is a participation in the body, a participation in the blood. And you have to be a part of the body in a spiritual way to receive uh, that participation, to be a part of the communion. And we can't be communing with other people and with the Lord at the same time. It doesn't work like that. So, three principles. Christ is bodily present at the right hand of the Father, so he can't be here because he's up there. Second, the substance of bread and wine remain in the Eucharist. They remain in communion. And third, the faithful truly eat and drink Christ's body and blood, while the unfaithful do not. Any questions about those um, three principles? So, and, And part of what I'm trying to show here is that our doctrine of the Lord's Supper is not... Um, arbitrarily coming up out of debates with Roman Catholics or whatever, we're actually coming to it with a view toward, first of all, scripture, understanding that scripture speaks of Jesus in certain ways, and scripture speaks of communion in certain ways, and of our relationship with Christ in certain ways, and we have to, we, we can't develop our doctrine of communion independent of those things, which is what happens in the Roman Catholic Church. But we also want to be in, in concert with the historical line of thinking, and I've, I haven't demonstrated that tonight, that we are, but I can point you to some sources on that. Um, and so we want to affirm that something is really happening, A, because it, or something is really happening in terms of our, our eating the body and blood of Christ, A, because Jesus says it is, but also because that's what the church has held. And so we don't want to just throw off um, the language of the early church fathers. So for example, um, Ignatius of Antioch calls the Lord's Supper the elixir of life. So we have to do something with that besides just say, well, he was wrong. He could be wrong. He's not, the, he's not scripture. Um, but that, that sort of language appears over and over again in um, the early church fathers. And maybe, maybe they might know something. So <clears throat> so just to, to um, round it out, I'm, I'm looking at my out-of-order catechism here. Um, let, let's finish off with uh, question 168 here. The larger catechism. It's on page 103, if that helps. <laughs> and this, this hopefully can wrap things up and kind of frame uh, why all this matters. And by the way, you'll notice if you look at the proof text on the bottom of that, they're almost all from 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. So, again, if you're interested in more of this, that's a good passage to meditate on. So what is the Lord's Supper? Question 168. Answer. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament or the New Covenant in which bread and wine are given and received as Christ directed to proclaim his death. So one of the things we're doing, we certainly, when I talk about how we're not memorialists, we're certainly memorializing Christ's death. and We're proclaiming Christ's death. That's, that's certainly a part of what's happening, but it's not all that. So the first thing we do is we proclaim his death. Those who receive the Lord's Supper in the right way, that is by faith, feed on His body and blood and thereby are spiritually nourished and grow in grace. And so when we eat body, the body of Jesus, when we drink the blood of Jesus by way of spiritual nourishment, we are growing in grace and God uses those things for our benefit. I remember last week we talked about that's in the realm of sanctification. And here's how that works. They have their union and communion with Christ confirmed. And they publicly witness to and repeat anew their thankfulness and commitment to God and their mutual love and fellowship with each other as members of the same mystical body. So when we take communion, part part of what's happening is what Jesus is doing and part of what's happening is what we're doing. What Jesus does is is when you take communion, by by means of of, of what the church is doing in communion, he tells you, you are mine. You are in union with me. You are in communion with me, and if you have faith, that communion is real, and you truly do feed on my body and blood, and you get, you are truly eating at the table of the Lord. And then what we do is we publicly witness to and repeat our thankfulness. So we, it's the Eucharist, by the way. The word Eucharist means give thanksgiving, um, which is why that when, that's the word that gets used when Jesus gives thanks, right. Um, and so we publicly witness to, our, witness to and renew our thanksgiving and our commitment to God. And so it's a covenant renewal. We're coming back to God. And finally, we are joined together in mutual love and fellowship. So communion confirms our communion with Christ. It renews that union with Christ. And it brings us together. And so something to think about next time you're doing communion. A lot of times... When we take communion, we think of it as a private spiritual act. That we're doing something um, that is just between me and God. And there's a sense in which that's tr- true. We we're called to examine ourselves and we're called to come with, with worthy hearts. But in another sense, it, it, it's not a private act. And this is why we don't do it at home or, or whatever, just on our own time, right? Um, it's a communal act. And it's all of us together. As the body of Christ proclaiming Christ's death. And so, just a few things, reflection points for this Sunday or Wednesday when we take communion. Remember that you are not doing this alone, that you're doing this with the family of God. And it's a, it's a family meal. That's why, you know, the table's in the middle of the room. It's because we're coming to a family meal, right? That's why we don't um, have like an altar rail or something that you come up to and kneel before. It's because we're, we're a family. And at, at the family table, you sit and eat together. Um, You don't don't come and kneel at your mom's table, right? And so at Jesus' table we come and we sit together around His table. Also remember that this is, there's something real and spiritual happening, that we are really feeding on the body and blood of Christ. It's not just a memorial, so we we need to take it seriously, we need to remember that in, in doing this we are proclaiming certain things about Christ. And we are uniting ourselves to Christ. And so we we ought to come with pure hearts. We ought to come with uh, pure minds and um, quiet minds before God. But that doesn't mean, and I'll finish here for real now. um, (laughs) If you look at question, this will be be the real end. So this is going to be complicated because it's going to jump pages. Oh, no, it's not. So question 172. Question 172. Final thing. Should those who have doubts about their being in Christ or about whether they are ready to take communion come to the Lord's Supper anyway? Question one or page 104. Answer. Those who have doubts about their position in Christ or about their readiness to take communion may nonetheless have a valid interest in Christ, even though they are not yet assured of being in Him. In God's view, if such people are aware of and grieved by their lack of assurance, sincerely wants to be found in Christ and wants to get away from sinning, and since promises are involved in the sacrament and it has been established to aid even weak and doubting Christians, if people in that condition are truly sorry for the lack of faith and work hard to resolve their doubts, they may and ought come to the Lord's Supper so that their faith may be further strengthened. So the final thing is that the Lord's Supper is not for the spiritually strong. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, Any of us gets too strong for communion, but communion is for the weak. Jesus ate with sinners, and we're all sinners, and we're in need of His grace and of His table and of His communion. And if we eat with Him, we can have eternal life. If we eat with Him and join Him at His table, He offers offers us grace and forgiveness. And so I encourage you, this Sunday and this Wednesday, cling to that and grab onto that um, as you take communion. So, any, Any final thoughts, questions? Concerns, anything? How does the church determine how often? Uh, in our context, it's up to the elders. So the elders just determine how often. So. Some churches have it every week. Yes. So some churches have it every week. Um, the way that, the, so in Southern Presbyterian churches, the tradition has been to do it quarterly. That, that goes way back to um, Geneva. John Calvin uh, believed that we should have it every week. But um, John Calvin, was at, he was dealing with the government authorities and so the civil government actually told John Calvin, you can only have it once a quarter. And so that's why in Geneva, and that became the tradition of the Reformation to do it once a quarter in certain sectors. Although there were places, in England they did it every week. Um, and so there was kind of that broad spectrum of Basically, once a quarter was the least frequent you got in the Reformation, and then weekly was common in some places, but not everywhere. And so, But most of the Reformers, for theological reasons, preferred a weekly communion. Um, but that was, a, that was a really radical shift for uh, the people, because you gotta remember, they were only taking communion once a year when they were um, under Roman Catholic jurisdiction. Um, and so even though the Reformers basically said, this is the way it should be, um, that was really impractical given their context. So, but it's up to the elders. is the short answer to yeah. that. So, any other questions or concerns? <laughs> so, all right, well, let's pray and we can uh, head out. Father, thank you uh, for this table that you set before us, for drawing us near, for calling our names, and for bringing us into your presence. Father, would you show us. Your presence uh, this Sunday as we come before your table. Would you strengthen our faith by it? Would you show us your grace and your mercy and your love by the sacrifice of your son? Would you remind us of our participation with the body, with his body across the world as we continue, um, as we come to to feed and eat around the family table of Christ? Um, Father, would you bless us through that? Would you cleanse us of our sins as we come? forgive us and give us grace to receive you well we ask all these things, things in Jesus name amen